0: Thank <sweak> you. Welcome to ACA a podcast brought to you by the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon. That was, you really nailed it. That was good. I'm, um, well, this is the second time we've done this for this episode. So I had a little practice before.
1: Yeah. And, and now we're, now we're uh, each communicating from our bunkers.
0: We are. This is, uh, so as I mentioned, we, we already re- did this once about a, a week ago, five days ago, and a lot has changed in that time. You'd be amazed how quickly things can change.
1: So we are not uh, preparing for SCMS in a couple of weeks. We are preparing for our new digital online future.
0: Yes, uh, as with most universities, I think our university has been shut down for a week and then we will go back online and and do classes online in whatever capacity we can manage to figure out in the next week. Yeah, I I
1: hear it's actually really easy. Um, I think what I'm going to do is um, I've got some bricks from a patio project out in the yard. And so I think I'm going to write letters, like write messages on the, uh, (laughs) out on the, out on the lawn. And hopefully people Mm -hmm. can pick them up on like, I don't know, Google earth or something. And
0: just listen to a podcast called the memory palace. And they were talking about um, how passenger pigeons used to be used for communication. So maybe I could do that. Maybe I can just wrap up a lecture. Oh, totally. I've got, you know, a class with 14 people, another with 24. So that's, you know, I just need that many pigeons and tuck the lectures in there and send them off.
1: I think that works exceptionally well.
0: We've got this nailed down already.
1: I think so. So now let's move on to the important stuff. We've got a good episode coming yeah,
0: up. Yeah, we do. And you all are, you know, quarantined inside your homes. And so we've got some good stuff for you to listen to. And again, some of this is is old. One of them, the first piece, this is an interview with Paul Taberham, a uh, professor at Bournemouth University. He uh, does work on the avant-garde animation and cognition. And I visited him at the end of last summer. So such a more innocent time back last summer. Oh,
1: Last summer. I, you know, I, I have actually really enjoyed all of these last summer segments because they get me uh, mm-hmm. out of my house and give me a chance to, <laughs> to travel Europe with you. So that's good.
0: Yeah. You cannot go to, you know, in or out of Italy right now. But if you listen to our last episode, we went to Italy and I take you to the streets of Matera. So if you're looking for, you know, an experience of Italy that is not coronavirus related, listen oh, to our last Matera. episode.
1: I'm just, I'm like having Matera it's memories. Nice. From you, of course. We were so I've never young been then. there, but yeah, I was very young <laughs> then. We also have a great piece by Steph Brown. She has been doing a project. Uh with the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, really exploring their resources. And we have a piece she did that is an interview with Rin Marchese, their outreach coordinator.
0: Great, yes, thank you so much for that, Stephanie. So we're just gonna play the rest of the episode here, which was recorded before, so the ending banter you know, won't make mention of, of any of this. Um, we'll try to, uh, so we do have a second part of Stephanie Brown's podcast coming, and I think otherwise maybe in the, you know, the next episode we should try to do something related to all that's going going on. Um, I don't know what that might be, an an interview about online teaching or something, but we'll figure it out.
1: Yes, we will. And in the meantime, uh, Paul Tabram. Tabraham. Tabram.
0: Whatever. It all works. Enjoy Paul. (laughs) Here comes Paul. I'm continuing my tour around England and I'm down in the, is this the south coast, southwest coast? Where are we, Paul? Southwest. Southwest in Bournemouth. And um, my guest here is Paul Taberham. Uh, th- thanks for getting my name right. Dang. Well, is that, is that, that's right? Paul Tabraham?
2: Um, there's, contra- even, even in my own family. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. I thought it was Tabraham my entire life. And when I was 19, my mom told me, no, it's Tabram. 19 years old. You only found out. 19. And I, I told, I told my wife and now it's her name. And she said, well, I'm saying Tabraham." <laughs> okay. So she's taking ownership. She's right. not even, I can tell her how to say right. it. Right.
0: It's the day and age we can go by what we want to go by now. So, <laughs> yes. all right. Um. So I'm uh, very happy to chat with you, and uh, and you do some really fascinating work, so I'm glad to get a chance to sit down and chat with you about it, and I want to start the conversation with your work, and then we'll delve in deeper, but you have a book, and I'll note an open access book, so all of you out there can go uh, rush to our show notes, and you'll find a link to it there. So your book is titled Lessons in Perception, The Avant-Garde Filmmaker as Practical Psychologist, and in that book you're applying um, concepts of cognitive psychology to avant-garde filmmaking, so I'm curious about that. That the bringing together of these two worlds, cognitive psychology, and avant-garde filmmaking. So, what brought those two worlds together, and, and why do you think that's a really productive approach to um, to avant-garde filmmaking?
2: Well, I'll, I'll confess that it was um, it was serendipitous because, uh, I, like a lot of people, when they start their PhDs, the the book's based on my PhD, mm. and. Uh, Like a lot of uh, ideas for PhDs when they get started, they're not fully mature (laughs) necessarily. So really it, it began with me being interested or I think obsessed is a fairer word with avant-garde film mm-hmm. and just a plain curiosity uh, about what the brain does when when it's engaging with, with cinema. So mm-hmm. e- even though I didn't formally study psychology, uh, questions of, of, of what goes on in the brain uh, when, when watching movies always fascinated me. So um, I was having these thoughts when I was about 24 years old. I'd done my uh, first degree uh, and an MA by then, first his degree was uh, principally in music, though uh, a little bit of film theory, and then the mo was in documentary production, with film theory on the side. Um, so by sheer stroke of luck, in two thousand and four, at my sister's wedding, uh, of of all places, I got talking to her childhood friend, and I told her I was having thoughts about film and what goes on in the brain. And mm. she said you should speak to uh, a friend of mine who's a uh, psychologist, Tim Smith, because that's what he looks at. So I emailed Tim, and. Uh, As it turns out, Tim's a prominent member of the uh, SESMI, Society for Cognitive Study of Moving Image. Mm -hmm. So he forwarded me to a book by uh, Joseph Anderson uh, called The Reality of Illusion. And this book, look. the principal argument is that uh, cinema is modern technology interfacing with ancient biology. Mm. So all the senses that we have uh, the ability to read another person's face uh, to respond emotively everything that we do, you know, physically is all designed for us to uh, evolve in a completely different context Mm. Uh, but what Joe suggests is that uh, all of these facilities, including mental facilities, are being exploited by uh, filmmakers so they're kind of practical psychologist, intuitively figuring out how to um manipulate the mind mm-hmm. uh i realize i've not even come close to answering your question yet. you're on your
0: way i'm, <laughs> I'm still i'm still interested yeah, so thank you
2: so i read this book you know quite quite fascinated and all the way through i was thinking but what about avant-garde film mm-hmm. um being that that was my my, my other fascination at the time and um i love joe's book but what i found in his work and also others is that uh those that 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 take a cognitive, particularly an evolutionary cognitive approach to the arts, tend to either directly or indirectly dismiss the avant-garde let's say we evolved the facility to uh, engage w- with another intentional agent this is something that we uh, evolved just to just to, to survive in, in in day-to-day actions then to take a simple example uh, that's what we do in cinema then uh, since we've evolved this facility to engage with others then we watch we watch movies in order to um, you know uh, re- rehearse that facility that we that we evolved so um, they'll say things like that but then i think well what about an abstract animation which which does none of that um or it'll make the argument that we're attuned to understand things in a nar- uh, narratively uh, memory gets turned back into a narrative so on and so forth well what about Maya derin then mm. right um who sort of works obliquely with narrative but subverts it slightly so so what's going on the most uh, direct rejection of a um evolutionary uh approach to the avant-garde comes from stephen pinker mm-hmm. who said in the blank slate uh, that the reason modernist art and the avant-garde from which art arose is uh, so unpopular is is because we replace linear narratives with a uh, peculiar stream of consciousness you know modern literature and we replaced paintings of flowers with dribbles of paint <laughs> and so on so he says uh, uh modernism took all the fun out of art. Mm. I'm like, Oh you think so, do you? So yeah? know,
0: that's that's where the fun is, you <laughs> right. think? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um so of course, you know, I, I hear something like that and think, well that it must have happened for some reason. Right. It it, I don't buy that it's just a, a rejection of, uh, of nature or of, or of our natures mm-hmm. uh, as much as anything. Because there's that argument that uh, we only enjoy the avant-garde uh, for some sort of social capital,
0: mm-hmm. if, right.
2: if you like. Well, well, anyone who gets into the avant-garde knows they're not going to make many friends <laughs> by, by right. doing that. You're not going to
0: start too many conversations in the grocery store. With... <laughs>
2: no. <laughs> no, or even make many other friends. So <laughs> who like it and those who do can be a little socially awkward so um so so what is it to finally come come around to your to your question then uh that's uh, part of what the project was about was trying to find uh, an evolutionary explanation for why we we engage with avant-garde film. So let's say then that I had that to uh, contribute to the field of evolutionary psychology. In terms of what I had to offer um, the field of avant-garde film, uh, we can say that there have been artists and scholars who've talked about avant-garde film in relation to uh, perception and cognition. Uh, Someone like Paul Sharritz, Mm. uh, for example, uh, uh, wrote about cinema as perception. Uh, And P. Adams-Sitt, He did something similar in his seminal book, uh, a a visionary film. uh, the title lessons in perception uh, from the book actually comes from uh, Michael snow the avant-garde filmmaker mm-hmm. who I think it was his film back and forth said he imagined it as a lesson in perception <laughs> right so so all these artists and uh, film scholars have said it's to do with uh, perception and cognition but uh, very few have taken up the challenge of, of, of actually bringing those two traditions together mm-hmm. and saying well how do they speak to each other the final point that I'll make is that um, I'm not the first to do it. Uh, The very first book that looked at this was by William Weiss and it's called Light Moving in Time and that's from 1992. It's a wonderful book and he looked specifically at at, a visual perception. Uh, One of the most productive chapters was on uh, Stan Brackage, and, and he talks about something called the dialectic of eye and camera. And that's the idea that people can erroneously make the assumption that uh, the human eye and the cinematic lens are the same. Uh, but they're actually not. So the dialectic of Iron Camera is about coaxing out the distinctions or differences between between them. So in a, w- in a way, my book uh, attempts to extend... Uh, that concept to other filmmakers he didn't look at notably Mm -hmm. Robert Breer Uh, a book that closely followed William Weiss's book is by James Peterson and that's called dreams of chaos visions of order yeah Um, are you uh, because it uh, used to under Bordwell you... Well, Perhaps well you I was going to say it? you're you're
0: bringing me back to my grad school days yeah. because um, that and then also I took a class on avant-garde cinema with JJ Murphy and so Did I'm really? familiar with with many of these filmmakers and, and these books through through that class and it was it was a really valuable class to take because of their studying formalism with Bordwell and the crew um, and then having a class like that which which it really feels like it strips something down to the essence of cinema and watching mm. these films which were not always easy to watch Um, And also J.G. Murphy, one of his class policies was we had to watch every film twice. First time to just kind of see it and then the second time to really be able to think about it yeah, so honest. like watching Wavelength twice and things like that you know it's it was a challenging class um but uh, one I feel like I got a lot out of uh, twice in a row or you'd have a little conversation and then there were separate times yeah and, and especially right. because I had some sort of schedule conflict with one of the screenings and so it was myself and one or two others we had to watch it at a different time I can't remember if that was the original watch or the rewatch, but those were two two separate times mm-hmm. at least one of them I'm pretty sure was a Saturday morning viewing because there was one we were watching um, what's the is it serious remember is that the brackage film where the dog um, decomposes That's over time yep. and I was I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be very honest here with the Akimedia listeners um, I was really hungover, I was like really <laughs> nauseous and I had to watch that that was tough right. so that you know you never know what you're gonna get in the avant-garde things you you know you'll have to deal with so the, the,
2: there's um, a story I, I probably shouldn't name names but I'd, I'd heard of a professor who screened the active scene with one's own eyes? Oh
0: yes, uh, the, yes. The, the Stone and that's in morgue.
2: Um, yeah, it's a, an autopsy. Autopsy, uh, okay. great. That's what apparently the word autopsy is like. Uh, the ancient Roman word it. Literally translates to the act of seeing the ones I know. It's
0: such a beautiful title, by the way. Just yes, a side note. But.
2: Yes. To see it, to see the body, yeah. you know, being being disassembled. And this professor apparently was eating a sandwich <laughs>
0: during, during the screening. Uh, yeah. Well, I think this this justifies applying cognitive psychology to this because these are like when I think about those films, I think about my mental processing of them and like I can vividly see myself in that space watching that film What I felt like like I'm not remembering the nausea but I'm remembering sort of like and so it's very much a a mental experience of, of thinking back and, and watching those films Right,
2: yes and, and some of them very much want to draw your attention to what your brain is doing right.
0: Which also is intriguing than trying to think like you do in your book of what were filmmakers trying to do like what are they why are they doing this what are they asking of spectators And I presume that's another aspect that cognitive psychology can help unlock. So it's not just the experience of the person taking it in, but the experience of the person or the intention of the person making it and the kinds of things they're trying to do.
2: Right, absolutely. Paying paying attention to their own nervous systems. Mm. Um, The original title of my book was Sensors Muse and Lessons in Perception, but we decided that was too long, so we took out Sensors Muse. But that speaks directly to to what you were saying. And, And that phrase, Using the sense as muse mm-hmm. comes from uh, a letter that Stan Brakhage wrote to the uh, film critic Jonas Mekas mm. in about 1963. So, so Stan was very much interested in that, seeing, uh, uh, her paying attention to his own visual facilities, squinting. <laughs> um, say, you know, if you if you shut your eyes really tight and maybe lightly press against your eyes, you see little speckles and things like that. Yeah. So, so what is all that, and can we pay attention? to it to make it aesthetically interesting.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, You also do some work on animation. You have um, an anthology chapter on experimental animation, which is titled It Is Alive If You Are Defining Experimental Animation. And you're focusing in that on viewing strategies for watching experimental animation. And I just want to quote one uh, line from it. You write, A common misconception is that experimental animation, along with other art forms which directly challenge a spectator's habits of engagement, such as contemporary dance, atonal music, or abstract painting should be understood as elite, intended only for a specialized audience. And we've already discussed there is a little factor of that as as you were talking about with the avant-garde. But I'm curious, so in this article, then how do you position experimental animation to address that misconception? And as we're talking about, you know, taking classes in, in this, how do you overcome reticence um, students might have, colleagues might have, to explore the the avant garde in something like experimental animation?
2: Well I have reasonably large cohorts. Okay. So, so, you know, around 105 Mm. per per lecture. So I'm sure you've experienced this as well, that you'll show a movie, you'll introduce an idea, and uh, there might be a buzz in the room. (laughs) Um, Maybe you're projecting the buzz, not you specifically, but you (laughs) you never really know whether someone's falling asleep or doodling and maybe someone else's life is being changed forever. So I'll, you know, I'll try and speak to those who care about it and maybe those who uh, maybe feel like they're being forced to eat cultural vegetables (laughs) might might catch some of that enthusiasm along the way. One way uh, I can make it more accessible or or of interest because uh, I teach the theoretical component of a uh, production-based degree. So all all the other lecturers or professors as you would say in the US um, on my course are from industry or who are artists. I'm uh, I'm the only um, scholar. So the students on, on my course generally uh, aspire to work in the uh, commercial industry rather than as independent artists right. after after graduation. Uh, so one way that I can make it more of interest to them is by saying that there is uh, a deeper connection between the avant-garde and the commercial realm than you might think. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only things like Oscar Fischinger making animation for uh, Fantasia, for example, uh, but also in a movie like, a, like, like Ratatouille, mm-hmm um if you recall there's a scene where is it Remy the the rat um tries two different flavours together, like a strawberry and a hunk of cheese or something. And, uh, and to represent the uh, flavours, they have these swirling colours uh, behind them. Well, those special effect colours were done by a guy called uh, Michel Gaggner, who has made experimental synesthetic films. So the um, aesthetic of that just pours straight over from the avant-garde uh, into into the commercial realm. There's a, another wonderful avant-garde filmmaker called Gianluigi Tochafondo, He's an animator, who Who does the um, like? uh, What do you call them? There's like a little animation before the uh, movie starts that has like the name of the company. Oh right, yeah. Is there a name for those? Or I don't know. Can't think. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But he'll do like the little title cards and and things like that.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, So there's that. Another way of I think making it more accessible and less elitist is by speaking about it in a very uh, plain and direct way um so even though the films evoke more than they tell and they might be quite oblique or suggestive or obscure that doesn't mean that you have to talk about them in that way <laughs> uh, you can talk about the avant-garde in very co- concrete terms and i think in terms that um are easy for students or anybody else for that matter to grasp if you say uh, you, you know these sorts of films evoke more than they explicitly state uh, they can understand that if you say these sorts of films draw attention to their own medium so you might you know be able to visibly see thumbprints on the mm. on the clay or the film's sprockets or something like that they understand that another way to make students connect with it is by asking uh, directive questions. So if I was to show them, let's say, Dimensions of Dialogue by Anne Svankmeyer um, and say, what does this mean? I'll probably, you know, hear crickets and yeah. uh, tumbleweedle drift across the, <laughs> the room. Uh, for any listeners who don't know it, it's a film with uh, three different parts. Uh, but one of those three parts involves uh, two clay busts
0: for these stout men. Do you know this film, Chris? I do not. I haven't uh, seen that one. J.J. Murphy didn't show that one. Ah, so. okay,
2: okay. Yeah, Look it up. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, Dimensions of Dialogue. So in it then you've got these two clay busts of these sort of stout men and they, they're they staring at each other and they're um, stop motion animated and then one of them opens their mouth and out comes a shoe and then the other one opens his mouth and out, mouth, and out comes a lace and the lace goes into the shoe and then one um, opens his mouth and out comes a toothbrush <laughs> the other one uh, toothpaste comes out and it, and it goes on like this a pencil a pencil sharpener everything's fine and then uh, one spits out a shoe and the other spits out a pencil sharpener mm. and they you know uh, the sharpener tries to do the shoe, and then, and and it's the same, you know, it, things keep mismatching, and suddenly these two giant busts, you know, their heads start melting and they look <laughs> exhausted by each other. Um, so if I ask the students, what do you think of this then? Usually nothing. But if I, give them sort of sort of directive questions or start hinting at things uh there seems to be a film about communication what do you think Svankma is trying to say can and, that kind of lead them yeah that'll lead them into you know uh, okay maybe sometimes people can you know uh, be on the level with each other and sometimes there are misunderstandings and you know so on mm-hmm. and so forth uh they can sometimes be embarrassed by thinking uh, obliquely or they wonder if they're allowed to or supposed to
0: right or they're afraid of being wrong yeah yeah and especially it well, seems such a complex area for avant-garde because so much of it does seem open to interpretation and I have you know the students in my class I teach tv classes and it's the you know it's you know relatively speaking kind of simple text and you can say like what did you or you know like I'll show a clip and say just describe to me what you saw and they'll be quiet like there, there's a <laughs> yes. reticence of, of putting a personal interpretation on the line and and so with the avant-garde it's it's i think even more room for saying things which might make them even more reticent to say yeah you know, which which should be the opposite cuz it should be kind of you, you know go ahead be off the wall come up with something right but right, i can right, see that right. kind of reaction
2: and you you'll get both usually you know most people will be reticent but i find most year groups there'll be some brave soul who's willing to go out on a limb i was you know that eager
0: that was you you know <laughs> at the
2: front with the, waving his arm and oh oh
0: me, please. <laughs> well, you have added something new to your plate then, uh, because you have a YouTube lecture series. So I want to ask about that as well. Sure. Um, and it's about, and clearly you, your uh, work is, is really interested in aesthetics and how we process them, and that seems to be the direction of your lecture series. You've got four videos up there as we speak. There might be more by the time this gets heard, um, but this is basically a lecture series on the philosophy of aesthetics. So you've got overviews of topics such as the philosophy of beauty or theories of humor, so, what drove you to add this piece, this sort of public-facing piece? What made you want to do this? And then, what do you hope you get out of it? What do you hope others get out of it?
2: I, I can answer that question from a few different angles. In terms of the careerist <laughs> angle, the uh, uh, the REF, uh, this wouldn't be a, a REFable output then. Okay. Uh, but in the UK, lecturers can be uh, can choose to specialise in either REF Research Excellence uh, Framework. Um, TEF, which is uh, Teaching Excellence and uh, KEF which is uh, knowledge exchange so career-wise then I thought since there's been an emphasis on uh out- outputting research I wanted to try knowledge exchange instead uh, this podcast would count as knowledge exchange okay. rather than you know a, a peer-reviewed right uh, output so so indeed you know when I'm when they ask me what have you done for knowledge exchange one of the things I can say is <laughs> I've been on this fine podcast right so that's part of what the YouTube videos uh are about, or about or a way to sort of rationalise it and have it part of my career rather than a labour of love which you know had I not had children I may have done Anyway, But, you know, as long as I'm able to have it feed into my career as well, then then I will. Uh, beyond that, I have filmmaking skills that I wanted to, to put to use and, and connect to my career in, uh, in, in some way. Uh, so, so this was my opportunity to do that. I wanted to look at things like uh, beauty and theories of humour, um, putting one together at the moment on value in art. Uh, because a seed was planted in about 2008 when I was in my into my second year of the PhD. And um, a well-regarded uh, aesthetician named Gerald Levinson came to uh, my university and uh, looked at the philosophy of aesthetics, specifically from an analytic perspective, and I thought it was so wonderful how he was crystallising ideas of, of how we experience art and what, what one thing means and what the underlying assumptions are when we talk about things like value value or taste or, um, you know, what is an aesthetic experience and so on and so forth. So I always wanted to pursue that and having been busy building a career for myself, it took 11 years for me to finally get around to it. But what I'm doing is, um, it's very simple, there's various articles that I wanted to read, many of which are in the Routledge Companion to Aesthetics. I read them, I sort of sort of pick out the main ideas, and then I relay them, you know, so having spent years as a uh, lecturer means, you know, I've kind of got the hang of how to take an idea on board, distill it, and then uh, relay it to others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no uh, dark magic to it or anything, it's a very simple idea, it's just... Nobody else did it. <laughs> uh, much like listeners, uh, Chris and I were talking earlier about this podcast, and just no one else had done it, and it's such a good idea. So, yeah, uh, you you put what you want to see in the world. So, I uh, you know I learn by teaching. So, so this is my way of sort of in quotation marks teaching uh, viewers on YouTube about about the philosophy of aesthetics, and indeed. You know, me being me, is going to feed into uh, a course that I'm teaching next uh, next term as well. So I want to. We had an opportunity to make changes to the course, so I uh, decided to. I proposed to the course leader a uh, a new unit where I look at the philosophy of aesthetics okay. and connect it to animation Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do it I hope not to lose any friends saying this but um, film studies as a discipline has sort of been around since the 60s arguably earlier animation's even more nascent you know it sort of picked up in about the mid to late 90s there had been bits and bobs before then but books like Understanding Animation by Paul Wells and Maureen Furnaces Art in Motion then were sort of where it really got moving in the in the the late 90s Um, philosophy of aesthetics goes back to plato so i thought you know you know how interesting for me and for my students to to look at these disciplines which have literally been going on for i don't know two and a half thousand years Okay, that's good that math in the head. Like, yes, <laughs> thank you.
0: Well then, uh, just final question, what do you see uh, coming ahead? What research projects do you have in the hopper? Uh, you know, where, where do you go from here?
2: Well, I'm currently writing a piece on performance in, in animation. I already had a piece which uh, looked at sound design in animation, so I've got sound and performance. Uh, I hope it doesn't def- uh, inflate it too much to call it this, but um, these are eventually going to be chapters in a book, Uh, which I'd like to publish, uh, provisionally titled Animated Visions, Theory, History and Aesthetics. Mm. And broadly, I'm imagining it as a uh, film art for animation. So uh, if I can do a chapter on uh, motion and then one on performance and there'll be to the look of storytelling one on sound one on character design background design so on and so forth so again it's um uh, I found that I enjoy pitching my writing at student level so I still want to publish pieces in academic journals and make original contributions but there's something about that clarity to pitching things at a student level which which I enjoy I try not to write material that only speaks to other other academics yeah Uh, There might be something that I I picked up from uh, the cognitive approach to film, which is affiliated with analytic philosophy. And the analytic, as opposed to continental philosophy, is very much about precision Mm -hmm. and plain, simple language and um, all those things that um, I think scholars get accused of and and characterised by, like, you know, inflating simple ideas or trying to intimidate you know, uh, outsiders with ideas that are difficult for them to understand and so on. Um, I like precision, clarity, simplicity, mm-hmm. uh, and insights. Yeah. And as best I can, then I want to I want to feed that into writing for student level, mm-hmm. even if people uh, postgraduate level or established scholars would find it helpful as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like there's certainly a burgeoning area of interest in animation among our students today. Um, so that will be A useful textbook.
2: Thank you. It's a few years down the line yet, but I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. All right. Well,
0: I look forward to that. And thanks so much for uh, spending time chatting with me today.
2: It's been an honor, really. Thank you so much.
1: I always like to uh, hear conversations about, you know, autopsies and rotting yeah. dogs and
0: yeah good stuff there yeah
1: there's there's you know that's that's rich material
0: <laughs> this could be a situation where someone listens to the podcast after you know waking up early on a saturday with a hangover listening to me talking about you know being up on a saturday with a hangover and watching a dog dissolve so there could be a spiraling effect here
1: oh it's like it's like nausea by proxy
0: oh yeah that's what that's what we bring you here yeah at Acomedia. yeah
1: yeah yeah, we try. You know, that was a it was a really great conversation. Thank you for for talking to him. It, it was such a refreshing way of thinking about uh, cognitive film scholarship. Sometimes it seems like, and this is maybe particularly an American thing, but um, conversations across and outside of cognitism sometimes don't um, aren't as productive as they could be because it kind of turns into this like culturalists versus mm. cognitivists sort of. Um, sparring about who's right about interpretation. Yeah. And um, I, I just love the idea of setting aside the most fraught areas there, questions of narrative and genre and and um, um, essentially questions that are so deeply enculturated and to just deal with, you know, just deal with the image, just deal with yeah. that encounter with the cinematic. right? And so that was really, really, really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I also appreciate how it made me think through ways of teaching that kind of material, and particularly mm-hmm. not just the avant-garde, but anything where your students might be resistant or find something boring or whatever. Um, his suggestions about how to engage students in those kind of discussions I yeah. think are spot on. And it's the kind of stuff you can adopt just for, just about teaching, just about anything that where you might have some resistance or disinterest or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, good stuff. And uh, I was poking around at some of his work and looking at the book, and really interesting scholarship. and. Mm-hmm. Um, Seems like a seems like a good guy.
0: Good chap, good bloke. Yeah, nice. All right. Well, back in the states here, we're going to deal with PBS. Or excuse me, not PBS, but um, but the Public Broadcasting Archive.
1: Right. Uh, in this case, focusing on a lot of more local materials. Mm-hmm. I don't want to completely uh, spoil the lead, but I love hearing about archival work that is not aimed at the at the big obvious targets and and is kind of filling out the picture of. Um, these different areas of media use and production.
0: Yeah, and especially because they generally don't get attention, and you need to go an extra mile to give them attention. So we really appreciate Stephanie Brown stepping up here and bringing us um, some some great information.
1: Take it away, Steph.
3: sad that people don't have as much time as I do to sit in the archive. I've learned so much about my place and time in history by looking at specific events through the content within the archive. My name is Rin Marchese. I'm the Engagement News Manager of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, which is a collaboration between the Library of Congress and WGBH Educational Foundation in Boston. And together, our mission is to coordinate a national effort to preserve at-risk public media and provide a web portal of discoverability for historical public radio and television programs.
4: Today, I'm bringing you the first in a two-part series about the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, a collaboration between the Library of Congress and WGBH Education Foundation in Boston. This first part is an introductory interview with Ryn Marchese, who is the Engagement and Use Manager at the Archive. In this segment, she's going to tell us a little about what she does with the Archive, how the Archive web portal works, and a preview of what kinds of amazing resources the Archive offers scholars, local stations, teachers, and anyone interested in the history of public media. In just doing research around this segment, I've been so excited by what I found available through their website, and I would highly recommend everyone go check it out. I'll be putting links to not only the archive itself, which can be found at AmericanArchive.org, but also all of their social media links and the specific exhibits and resources that Rin discusses in the interview, just as a starting point for anyone who wants to check it out. In an upcoming segment, I'll be talking to other members of the Archive team who will go into more detail about its history, scholarly partnerships, and the challenges of archival work, among other exciting topics. While the American Archive of Public Broadcasting officially began to take shape in 2010, the conception of an archive of public media can be traced back to the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967, signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson. As media scholars know, this act created the Corporation for
3: Public Broadcasting and mandated that it establish and maintain a library and archives of non commercial educational television or radio programs and related materials.
4: But at the time, we didn't have the technology for efficiently creating such an archive on a national scale. As Rin told me,
3: it would take a few decades, however, before technology could fully allow the realization of this mandate. And in 2010, CPP contracted with WGBH to manage the American Archive Content Inventory Project. And between 2010 and 2012, public media stakeholders and staff invested more than 107,000 personnel hours into a nationwide inventory of public broadcasting archival holdings. In 2010, CBB asked 120 stations to look into their closets and tell them what was in there. So writing basic metadata for content such as what programs they produced, who was part of the program, what year it was produced. So just enough information so that... We could start gathering what archives across the nation looked like in terms of audiovisual content. And that ranges in a lot of ways from station to station. Some like WGBH have been out of the norm in that they have made it a point to have archivists on staff to start preserving their stuff so early in WGBH's history. And that's why they're ahead of the curve in terms of preserving their content. But there are also stations across the nation that don't have the resources to do that. And so their stuff, has been in boxes for years or they've started digitizing and they can do that on site but they don't know the proper way to organize it and with turnover at institutions it's hard to maintain that certain level of cataloging. We meet stations where they're at and then help bring them up to speed in terms of preservation practices. Part of the work of the AAPB is helping local stations figure out how to digitize their
4: materials and to find resources for that work.
3: There are really two grants that provide opportunities for audiovisual archives to preserve their work, and that's the National Endowment of Humanities and CLEAR, which is the Council for Library and Information Resources. We mainly reach out to stations across the nation and let them know that these opportunities exist and that through these programs they can digitize their work. She also told me about one particular initiative she's really excited about in this area. So digitization is one of the most expensive barriers to preserving archival content. And outside of applying for grants, we've become friendly with different digitization vendors across the nation, including George Blood in Philadelphia. And he was at one of our sessions at the EMEA conference, which is the Association of Moving Image Archivists. And it was about how we were taking audio from our content, putting it through a computer generator to then create transcripts. And transcripts are very important because it at least it gives a sense of what's in the program. Sometimes it can be keyword accessible or you can at least search some specific dates. At the end of this meeting, we said, We have all these transcripts available online, and we're asking the public to help us edit these transcripts. And George approached us, and he said, it would be great if your participating stations gathered their community, and if they edited 20 of their particular station's transcripts, then I will digitize 20 of their tapes from their archive for free. And so, of course, we jumped on this opportunity how could we make this work? And so we established the Transcribe to Digitize Challenge where participating stations in the AAPB can opt in and they basically tell us what transcripts they want in our program called Fix It Plus, which is accessible to anyone at Fixit plus.americanarchive.org. And they can select a specific station that has opted in and correct transcripts line by line. And if they help correct 20 or more transcripts, George Blood will digitize 20 or more tapes from that station's collection. So I've been bringing that to senior centers, which is really great for having local folks engage with content that they lived through. And it's great to have local folks edit specific county names or mayor names, because th- those are the m- mainly what the computer can't translate. So now that the
4: archive is up and running, Ren is in charge of a great deal of outreach and coordination of various stakeholders.
3: As the Engagement Use Manager, I am responsible for leading outreach and audience engagement campaigns, both locally and in collaboration with our participating stations across the nation. And I oversee communication with three advisory boards that help guide and direct the AAPB in the areas of education, scholarly pursuits, and station services and outreach. They have been monumental in helping the AAPP engage with K-12 educators, graduate students, colleges, and scholars in making use of the AAPP archival material. Because we have to realize that AAPB, the website, is only five years old. To get something off the ground as monumental as this project is and so integral to our cultural fabric... We need the voices of the people that are going to use it. And we look into the community for inspiration, such as the National Archives or the Library of Congress, uh, as well as the DPLA. How do you get this information into an accessible format for folks? So we recently started these advisory committees, and a large part of my job is trying to gather their feedback and make implementation that is feasible for our developers and what, <laughs> what we have staff to do. She's also
4: in charge of running all of the social media for the archive. So I asked her what the most challenging aspect of translating the history of public broadcast media into social media and web engagement.
3: You have to think on so many levels, especially when you are in an environment that already is a specialty. So thinking about all the different niches of archivists who are going to be looking at your page or media specialists who are going to be looking at your page or just the general public and then trying to make that media accessible to them and engaging in the different ways is definitely an interesting job. So shout out to all social media managers out there. I feel you. A really cool part of her job is that she gets to work with
4: all these legendary figures from the history of American public broadcasting, like Bill Simmering, a founding board member of NPR and the author of NPR's mission statement, which we'll
3: link to in the show notes. So we have Bill Simmering on our executive advisory council, and Bill helped found the NPR statement in that public radio should be educational, should be challenging, should start conversations. Simmering was first introduced to radio as a student at a two-room country
4: school near Madison, Wisconsin, where they would sometimes listen to Wisconsin's public radio station, an
3: early template for NPR. And I did a presentation with him, and I learned so much about Wisconsin public radio, especially because that's kind of where public radio started in that it was meant to be educational for kids out in rural cities because that was the only way they could sometimes get classroom content especially during periods where people were sick and had to stay home so that kind of translation of information then branched off into radio dramas and news you know it's fascinating to, to see the history of public media
4: now the important question how do you
3: get to the archive anyone within the united states can access the archive at AmericanArchive.org. From there, the homepage offers different access points to our collection, including a general search, our special collections, which highlight specific series that we think are gems in the collection but wouldn't necessarily be sought out or found. And then underneath the special collections part of our homepage, there are the curated exhibits where these focus on themes, topics, and events of cultural and historical significance. In the exhibits, curators from the Library of Congress or staff members, or we sometimes hire scholars to help us create these exhibits, they contextualize all the digitized primary and secondary sources of public television and radio materials, and they present a diversity of perspectives concerning the exhibit's focus. And as a result, AAPB exhibits are often illuminating how public broadcasting stations and producers have covered the exhibit's theme. When you look at exhibits from that point of view, it's not like we're taking a stand on a specific topic. It's really looking at how public broadcasting has covered that one topic. I also asked her to highlight some of her favorite exhibits and collections. Among the collections preserved are more than 13,000 episodes of the PBS NewsHour collection, which is really cool because it dates back to 1975. Today, we launched the LGBT Plus Collection, which has over 2,300 programs from 58 stations across the nation. It's a huge collection and all of that is available online, which is great because you have a chronological view of LGBT plus topics represented in public media from 1950 to 2018. There's a series called Woman from WNED from Buffalo, New York, and it's a 1970s show hosted and produced by a woman. And you could maybe find that series if you search for feminist topics but it's great to have a specific link to a special collection that has a finding aid with detailed information about the content such as its creator recommended search strategies as well as related resources so that's what the special collections are they they highlight a collection and give a little bit more context behind the creation of that show
4: The Archive also has over 1,300 programs and documentaries from National Educational Television, which is the predecessor to the Public Broadcasting Service, and something everyone I talked to was really excited about. They have raw, unedited interviews with eyewitnesses and historians recorded for American Experience documentaries, including Stonewall Uprising, The Murder of Emmett Till, Freedom Riders, 1964, and The Abolitionists, among many others. Rain specifically talked about an interview she'd watched with Emmett Till's mother and one she'd
3: watched with Rosa Parks. There's a really great unedited interview with Emmett Till's mom talking about how she knew that her son was murdered and what that effect had on her before she even got the news. That's a story I've never seen within an edited production, so I was completely enthralled in her storytelling. One of my favorite things to witness in these raw interviews is that there's a person say rosa parks sitting there and she has a producer saying thank you very much for telling that story but do you mind retelling it with the question in there so when we edit it we can have the question in there and she does it you know so it's it's interesting to see that after 50 years rosa parks is now acclimated to how media works around her and how it it packages her story. If you aren't sure what you're
4: looking for, sometimes looking at the search bar of an archive can be overwhelming. So Rin had some tips for starting an expedition into the site and some explanations of how to use the search capabilities.
3: Through the general search on our homepage, the public can access what we call the online reading room or ORR. Briefly, in looking at the content, there, there are three accessibility options. The first is available online. That means that this content can be viewed within the United States because we don't have international access currently because of copyright. Next is all digitized. You can check this box if you wish to see a list of everything that has been digitized and contributed to the AAPB. Due to copyright, some of these materials contain third-party materials, and so they are not permitted for public release. However, if researchers would like to access this material, we can contact AAPB. Um, AAPB offers limited research access, which is a two-week password-protected link to a minimum number of assets. So that's generally how folks who are maybe in Hawaii that wanna access a specific topic can still get access to this content without visiting. And the last category is all records. This particular section is a list of inventory records related to specific search. And this is part of our mission in being a web portal of discoverability. So if someone is searching our website for Rocky Balboa and something pops up from Maryland Public Television, although it's not digitized, they at least can contact me and I can say, I can lead them to the correct person at Maryland Public Television to maybe discover, oh, there's a whole series about Rocky Balboa in this archive. That's kind of the hope in being a portal of discoverability. The filters are a wonderful way to refine your search by media type, genre, topic, asset type, and contributing organization, as well as specific years if you want something like the moon landing you know happened in nineteen sixty nine so it's great to search moon landing nineteen sixty nine and then you get anything related to that topic which is cool to kind of see across the nation what peripheral news outlets we're talking about in relation to the moon landing or what PBS News Hour reported on specifically about the moon landing. And as always we welcome everyone here at WGBH and the Library of Congress to access materials in the collection. So feel free to reach out to us if you'd like to come for a visit. What was
4: clear is how excited Vryn is about the archive and its potential to engage people with public broadcasting history and American history more generally.
3: I absolutely love my job. It combines my degree in media studies and background in academic administration with my passion for educational programming and community engagement. I've been fortunate to bring these components into my position and see them play out on local and national levels. I've seen things happen in Alaska. I've seen people engage with things in Texas all the way to Virginia and it's just it's great to kind of see people engage their content and Get excited about it all because I reached out. Our participating organizations have been phenomenal at responding to my ideas and organizing on-site events that engage their community with archival materials. Shout out to Louisiana Public Broadcasting, Wisconsin Public Television, Rocky Mountain, in Denver. They're all doing such exceptional jobs at reaching out to their folks, and I'm proud of them. I myself have had the opportunity to program events for the public at the Boston Public Library. I've loved engaging with seniors at senior centers. That's the best when you're giving a presentation about an event that happened 50 years ago and someone in the back raises their hand and says, oh, I was there. In those moments, you kind of transcend as an engagement person, you see, oh, this is where I am in the timeline. This is where they were in the timeline. This is what that content will mean going forward for both of us and it bridges such a large gap. It's phenomenal. So the possibilities are endless when it comes to engagement and use of archival materials. Public media is inherently curious and I'm so lucky to be in a position that continues to bring these topics and perspectives back to the public and to work with a knowledgeable and enthusiastic team. My ideas would fall flat if it weren't for the support of my team and local and national colleagues and the volunteer advisory members that I help manage. So look out for an upcoming segment with several other members of
4: the AAPB team where we'll dive more deeply into the archive, its history, and its potential benefits to Media Studies students, scholars, and teachers.
1: That was good stuff. You know, I really I love hearing the pieces that, that Steph does because she produces them so nicely and, yeah. and actually really thinks about uh, podcasting form in ways that are um, helpful for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Know, I
1: really I enjoy that a lot.
0: Yeah, she weaves in um, the you know the comments, her own observations. I think it's really well done. Which is more, you know, I I will just sit out, sit down with Paul Taberham and let him talk. I'm yeah. you know, I don't put in much more effort than that. Um, but so we really appreciate the work she puts into these, and it's worthy subject matter as well. This is, is such an important conversation, and particularly now at this time with the um, precariousness of all of these resources around us, um, to have support for this kind of work is really crucially important.
1: Any kind of public media is is so the precariousness of it is compounded, you know, it mm. it is not for profit. It is uh, often produced locally and not not held in a national, in a national resource. And essentially all of that uh, production history is recorded up until the, the digital era was recorded on analog media that are rapidly, rapidly obsolescing. Mm-hmm. And so any kind of work that that archivists are able to do and local stations are, are able to do to curate that material and hold on to it is so, so important.
0: Yeah, so grateful uh, for that work.
1: Yeah, I mean, you think like, you know, 1960, 1967, the uh, Public Broadcasting Act, that's essentially at the beginning of the videotape era. Hmm. And the vast majority of that material, even if it was saved, is just kind of... Those, those electrons are just shedding off off those, those wow. old tapes.
0: It's like a Thanos. Uh, that's an Avengers reference, right? Yeah, Am I getting I that right? Yeah, I okay. think so. <laughs> I, you would know better than me. <laughs> I don't, I've seen it, but... Uh,
1: As I say, you would okay. know better than <laughs> right.
0: me. All right, there we go.
1: <laughs> no, that's good stuff. And I'm looking forward to the second part of that of that conversation. In the meantime, are you watching anything? Are you so deep in the semester that you that you're... Just doing the work.
0: Um, I am watching, I make time to watch, uh, well, two shows, one American, one British. Um, the American, well, no, excuse me, one Canadian, one British. The Canadian mm-hmm. show is Shit's Creek. So that is coming to a close in the coming weeks, and it's just it's just comfort food. It's such a delight. Catherine O'Hara, everything she does and says is Moira Rose. Just, I eat it um, like candy. Um, so that's my, my little pleasure spot of, of mm-hmm. comfort food. And then the British show uh, that's currently running and watching is called Inside Number Nine. It's an anthology sh- series. Um, the name is just, each episode has a location that's number nine, like an address. Um, but it's Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith, and they're just super clever inventive creative storytelling stories often kind of based in around crimes or murders but Mm -hmm. in a very funny cheeky kind of way and it's just an absolutely brilliant show and this series is has been as good as any of them wow inside number nine inside number nine Yep. all right we'll link to it on our website i'm um you know, it's it's available only in... The current season is available only in the UK right now, but um, past seasons are available. I think Britbox has them, um, or Acorn TV. One of those sites has the previous seasons, and all of them, any of the past seasons, they're all amazing, and they're all one-off episodes. So you can dive right in, mm-hmm. pick anyone you want, um, and they're just really incredible bits of storytelling.
1: Nice. Good pitch. Yep. Uh, I just finished up watching uh, Watchmen. The oh, HBO yes. series. Yeah. And man, you know, obviously my uh my Thanos illiteracy is probably something <laughs> of a tell <laughs> as to my uh level of investment in you know comic-based um, films and TV. Man, so good, so such interesting work and the, the mining of this complex history of the of the Tulsa massacre and mm. um and essentially and the entire 20th century um, American race relations and popular culture is just, it's it's good stuff. It's
0: such ambitious storytelling. I just admire the heck out of it. And especially I too, I knew nothing about the comic. I didn't see the movie. um, So I knew almost nothing going in. And I've never been more confused by something that I enjoyed as much as this. Like there's so much mm-hmm. things I'm like, what is happening? I don't get it. And yet it just pulled me along through it. Mm-hmm. And especially, again, through then very concrete things of, as you say, these issues of, of race relations and the history of, and, and particularly kind of reversing polarities of, of, of mm-hmm. elements that have happened through history. And so the grounding in that kind of reality is so fascinating to pull through the, the kind of fantasy world that it's playing out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. So that's definitely worth a worth a watch.
0: All right, great.
1: Well, Acha Media is brought to you with the support of the University of Notre Dame as well as Denison University and the Society for Cinema and Media Studies.
0: Thanks to all our supporters out there. We greatly appreciate it.
1: We, we appreciate hearing from you as well. We've got a whole litany of ways that you can contact us. What are they?
0: And do we ever want to try to yeah. drop them in the moment? <laughs> do you
1: like the way that I set that up so that you got to yes,
0: say Yes, right. So we have a website, akka-media.org. Oh yeah, that's it. We've got a, an email address, info at akka
1: aka-media.org. Oh, really? One. Okay.
0: All right. right. Easy enough. Sounds good to me. Yeah. And then how about that Twitter? Twitter. ACA, Are you on the Twitter? I'm on the Twitters way too much, and it's poison, and I drink it down every single day, and it rots my insides. Not as much as Facebook. <laughs> 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 well, how we'll just have, have that argument or another episode. Uh, but we are on there, and I do retweet a whole bunch of stuff in the academic world. Um, particularly, there there are strikes going on in the UK. Um, there's an extraordinarily um, um, difficult situation going on at UC Santa Cruz, where TAs yeah. went on strikes to get livable wages, and many of them have been outright fired. Um, So, if you want to keep up with that situation, ACCA underscore media is our Twitter handle. Right on. Yeah, and I remember our last um, episode, which I think was was supposed to be our year-ender, though it came out in January. um, We called for more strikes, but we, you know, the kind of consequences that are coming from strikes in the U.S. are are really difficult. That's, uh, you know, the labor situation in the U.S. in general, not good stuff. Not getting better. Well, that's. Well, let's let's a happy note of labor those who help us with the podcast Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University, Stephanie Brown at Westchester University. Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester. Mm-hmm. Frank Mondelli at Stanford University. And all
1: pulled together uh, through the magical ears and wondrous uh, wisdom of Todd Thompson at the University of Texas.
0: All right. So we will catch you in a month or so. Yeah. Don't catch anything else. Till catch then. you. Don't catch <laughs> it.
1: Uh, it's not, there's, no, there's a bad pun in there somewhere, but we're just gonna. I'm just gonna back just away. Just back
0: away. back away. Wash your hands. <laughs>